In Matthew chapter 4, we're going to be reading starting at verse 17 and we'll read down through verse 25. And this comes, interestingly enough, this passage comes at the um, beginning of Jesus' public ministry as He has been baptized in chapter 3 and then in the early verses of chapter 4 has been driven out by the Spirit into the wilderness and was tempted by Satan. We then at verse 12 pick, on, pick up on the beginning of that ministry as He left and went to Galilee. And the Gospel writer Matthew makes reference then to the prophet Isaiah from that passage that we're so uh, well familiar with. Unto us a child is born and unto us a son is given. But he quotes the more obscure verses just prior to that more familiar one. Then in verse 17 we begin. Sorry, we're having problems here, huh? I push over. There we go, now click it. There we go. Is Daniel back there? Oh man, I was able to throw Daniel under the bus last week and it's not going to work. Don't know if you heard about that over lunch last Sunday, but uh, it happened. <laughs> but it went well, so you got credit. Matthew chapter 4, beginning of verse 17, we read, And from that time Jesus began to proclaim and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has drawn near. And Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brothers, Simon, called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a large net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately, having left their nets, they followed him. And having gone on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. And immediately, having left the boat and their father, they followed him. And Jesus was going about all of Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, healing all kinds of diseases and all kinds of infirmities among the people. And the report of him went throughout all of Syria. And they brought to him all who were ill, those oppressed by various diseases and torments, and those who were, being, who were possessed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics. And he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee, Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond the Jordan. It's pretty ironic that we living in a um, in a modern or postmodern America like royalty. After all, I mean, we were founded upon a rebellion against royalty, were we not? 
We like the discussion of kings and queens. We like the discussion of princes and princesses. It was not long ago that we all, you go ahead and admit it, I know you did, we all watched with bated breath as Prince William married Kate Middleton, the lowly, lowly Kate Middleton. And here just recently, we all watched, admit it, you know you did, with bated breath as they welcomed their first child into the world and named him George. I believe they named him George. We, we talk, we, we hear it talked of just in public life on Facebook and, you know, Twitter and on the news, you know, the, the controversy of she'll never be a princess, she'll always be a duchess and, and all that sort of stuff. And now we've got another, another child who's been born who's, uh, who's in the line to receive the crown. Our great stories, popular in America just as they are around the world. Lord of the Rings by Tolkien. Third book in that series being The Return of the King. It's a story of, of kingdoms. A story of kingdoms of good fighting against kingdoms of evil. The Chronicles of Narnia. Both of these two series, extremely popular books, became extremely popular movie series. They're stories of kings. Stories of knights, stories of royalty, stories of kingdoms. And we, in our constitutional republic of America, we like those stories just as much as others. Our fairy tales are based on a Prince Charming. Every little girl, unless she grows up wanting to play sports and so forth, she grows up dreaming about being a princess. In fact, uh, Imogene has already uh, gotten Lindsay to tell Jessica, to tell Marshall, he better start working on building a castle because when she and Jackson get married, she's going to be a princess and they're going to live in a castle. I think it's, I don't know if it's in Alabama or Georgia or where, but uh, it would be interesting. But we like, we like thinking about kings and kingdoms and princes and princesses and queens. We like that sort of stuff. We, it's interesting, our, our habits of thinking about and talking about royalty. It's almost as if there's a longing for a good king. There's a longing for a good royalty. There's a longing to be a part of a righteous and holy kingdom that has been placed into each of us. And I think that's actually the case. As Jesus begins His public ministry, He begins by calling the multitudes, calling the people of Galilee to repent. And He tells them the reason why they are to repent is because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You and I, being products of our uh, modern slash postmodern Western America, we think kingdom of heaven, ah, we get to heaven when we die. That's not what Jesus meant whatsoever. When Jesus was speaking of the kingdom of heaven, He had something specific in mind. And in commenting on that, the Anglican N.T. Wright says this in his book, Simply Christian. He says, Christianity is all about the belief that the living God 
in fulfillment of his promises and as the climax of the story of Israel, has accomplished all this, the finding, the saving, the giving of new life in Jesus. He has done it. With Jesus, God's rescue operation has been put into effect once and for all. A great door has swung open in the cosmos which can never again be shut. It's the door to the prison where we've been kept chained up. We are offered freedom. Freedom to experience God's rescue for ourselves. To go through the open door and explore the new world to which we now have access. In particular, we are all invited, summoned actually, to discover through following Jesus as His disciples did. That this new world is indeed a place of justice, spirituality, relationship, and beauty. And that we are not only to enjoy it as such, but to work at bringing it to birth on earth as in heaven. In listening to Jesus, we discover whose voice it is that is echoed around the hearts and minds of the human race all along. He begins that book, Simply Christian, by talking about this longing within all of humanity throughout all time, throughout all cultures and civilizations. Everywhere you've, found, you've, everywhere you've looked, you've found this longing for something beyond what we see around us. And he tells us that in Jesus we find the one who brings to fulfillment that longing. The kingdom of heaven that Jesus proclaimed, which he interchangeably also refers to as the kingdom of God, is not about getting to heaven when we die. It's not about his kingdom that one day is going to be established. It is, notice what Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It is here. It has arrived. The kingdom of heaven began when a baby was laid in the manger. That is the kingdom of heaven. That is where it begins. The kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is about God's rule and reign among His people. It's about God putting to order those things that have been kept for so long in disorder. It is about God putting to right those things that have been so wrong. It is about God recreating His people. And when Jesus proclaimed the kingdom, He was proclaiming not some future event to take place some 2,000 or more years later. He was talking about what was happening in real time and real space in history in those moments of His life. God was establishing a new way. He was establishing a new rule. He was establishing His reign among His people. The kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God ought to drive our minds to think about the way things ought to be, the way things were meant to be, and the way things God wants them to be. That's why in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus taught His disciples as He taught us to pray, Father in heaven, holy is Your name. Your kingdom come. That is our prayer request. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth just as it's done in heaven. That's what God's kingdom being established is all about. That's what Jesus was 
was proclaiming to the multitudes the kingdom of heaven, God's rule and reign is being established. Interestingly enough for us is we find ourselves kind of in a in a uh, in a transition period because God's kingdom was being established in His Son Jesus. Jesus came and ushered in the kingdom. He was the king. He has inaugurated a new era. But yet we look around us and we still see injustice. We still see oppression. We still see unrighteousness. We still see uh, crooks being rewarded. We still see people being oppressed unjustly. We look around us and we say, where's God's kingdom? We live in a time where the two kingdoms overlap. Where you've got the old order that has been defeated in Jesus that still lives on until His return. Because while His kingdom has been established and inaugurated, it is not yet fully realized. And that's why the life of the church is of utmost importance. Because it's in this, not just in our gathering for worship, but it's in our life shared together. It's in the way we relate to one another. It's in the way we interact with others. It's in the way we conduct ourselves and live our lives and speak to others in the community. It's in that church life that the world sees something different. They see a kingdom that doesn't play by the world's rules. They ought to. They see people who don't treat one another just based on what's fair and unfair. They see people who are graciously unfair in how they let go of burdens, how they love one another and give of themselves to one another. And so we live in this overlapping of eras where God's kingdom has been established but we are waiting to see it fulfilled. And it will be fulfilled as Tolkien prophesied to us with the return of the king. When he comes back, his kingdom will be finally put in order. Jesus' proclamation of the kingdom of God makes a declaration to us and to our lives as well. It declares to us, first of all, that Jesus is Lord. He is Lord. Let that sink in just for a moment. Jesus is Lord. Paul said to the Corinthians, no one can confess that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. And we think, you can't say those three words unless the Holy Spirit is leading you? We need to understand that to declare that Jesus is Lord is to, is to declare by inference that all others are not. There is but one Lord. There is but one King. There is but one that we are called to order our lives by. 
There is but one who is the center of our reality. He does not share His Lordship with anyone. He does not share His Lordship with any institution. He does not share His Lordship with any custom. He does not share His Lordship with anything. He is Lord. To declare that in the ancient Roman world was to declare that Caesar is not Lord. There is this subversive element of the Gospel where if we live our lives fully according to the call of the Gospel, all loyalties fall under submission of Jesus' Lordship. You are, if you are a Christian, you are a Christian first. You are not a modernist or a postmodernist. You are not a Westerner. You are not, gasp, an American first. Those who declare that Jesus is Lord are those who declare He is the first of our lives and every allegiance, every loyalty, Every confession we make is brought under His Lordship. It is only He that the Apostle Paul would declare. It is only concerning Him that the Apostle Paul would declare. Therefore God, in response to Jesus pouring out Himself and emptying Himself, as Charles Wesley wrote in the great hymn, of all but love, it is in Christ emptying Himself and giving of Himself even in the death of a cross, that God has then raised Him, and therefore God also has highly exalted Him and given Him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. Of those in heaven, and of those on earth, Tim, going even a step further, and even those of under the earth, that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And He proclaims to us, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The King has come and He has inaugurated a new day upon our earth. He has inaugurated the day of His kingdom. And when we consider this kingdom, we recognize that Jesus is Lord, and we recognize also that His promise to us, His people, His joy and His law is love. His promise to us is joy. It is not ease. God does not promise us an easy road ahead. His promise to us is not success. His promise to us is joy. Even when the road is not easy and even when we find that life has not been a success. I find it... um, Not at all coincidental that the passage immediately following 
the one we've read with one another this morning in Matthew 4 is Matthew 5, which you should know begins the Sermon on the Mount, which you should know begins with the Beatitudes. And notice the things that Jesus calls blessed, or the people that Jesus calls blessed. That, that word blessed could also uh, be translated joyful. Some translations say happy, which is, it, do, it does carry the idea of happiness, but we, we've kind of downplayed happiness so much. Happiness has nothing to do with virtue. It has nothing to do with rightness. It has nothing to do with goodness. It's just kind of an emotional feeling we get. But in the old world, the world of John Wesley, John Wesley would say happy. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. That's not our world. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Those who recognize I don't have enough. I'm not enough. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. He goes on, he says, Blessed are you when you're persecuted, when you're thrown out, when you're ignored, when you're besmirched, when you're spat upon, when you're mocked for my sake. And he comforted the multitudes by saying, They treated the prophets the same way. You're blessed, you have reason to have joy even in the midst of that. His promise to us as His people is joy, and His law for us as His people is love. His law is love. It is not primarily freedom. God's law upon our lives is a law of love. It is not a law of license. God's law... For us as His people is bound by His love. It's not bound by some inherited rights. In fact, God's law of love on us often calls us to surrender our rights. Someone runs you up the road? Yeah, rightfully, you could give it back to them. But there are times, probably more often than we recognize and heed, that God's Spirit whispers, absorb it. Don't assert your rights. Because His law upon us is that of love. We're called by His law to love God. And out of that love for God, we're called within His kingdom to love others. Our neighbor, just as your, ourselves. Jesus said these are the two commandments that sum up everything in the Law and the Prophets. We think the Law and the Prophets, the Old Testament, is contradictory to the New Testament. The Old Testament's bad, God's mean and vengeful. New Testament's good, God's gracious and kind, slow to anger and abounding with love. Wait a minute, that's quoted all throughout the Old Testament, it's not even mentioned in the New Testament. I got you on that one. But as Jesus works through this Sermon on the Mount, 
he goes on later on in chapter 5 at the end. He says, you have heard it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And the funny thing there, the, the thing that, that, that you know, we assume, oh, hey, he's quoting the Old Testament there. No, he's not. The first part, he's quoting the Old Testament. The second is an add-on. They've heard this said. Love your neighbor, hate your enemy. We think, yeah, that's Old Testament, right? Only that first part is Old Testament. Love your neighbor. Hate your enemy is what we've done with it. He says, you've heard that said. Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. This is where it gets hard. Bless those who curse you. Just this past week, confession time here, just this past week, Lindsay and the kids and I are driving down the road, and this guy with road rage, he's riding my tail. I'm already going over the speed limit. We're coming up on a red light. He goes flying around me. He's, he's passing me in a right turn lane, going straight. The light's turning red, and he's flying. I mean... I, it, it's bad, and so I, I honk the horn, and he, you know, makes a gesture out the window. Use your imaginations. And my response uh, was not joyful. It was not gracious. It was far from it. Um, I didn't, I, you know, I didn't salute him back or anything. But um, Bill, I told you, I don't have those ichthuses on the back of my car. I don't want anybody knowing. Uh, while I'm in the in the seat, but um, my response, you know, it it would have been easy to to bless him in response to his cursing, but you know, typically we would do that only sarcastically. Yeah, you're number one too, buddy. That's not what Jesus means here. He means generally bless those who curse you, those who do you wrong, do them right, do good. To those who hate you. Pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. That you may be sons of your Father in heaven. What does a son of our Father in heaven look like? Jesus. What did Jesus do? He loved his enemies. He blessed those who cursed him. He did good to those who hated him. He prayed for those who spitefully used him and persecuted him. We're reminded poignantly on the cross of his prayer in behalf of those who were crucifying him. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They don't understand this. Forgive them. Then he goes on couple of verses later he says you shall be perfect we don't like that word we think it's a it's a bad word we think that means you know everything you're everywhere at all times that's not what jesus is talking about here he's he's not speaking greek but he's being quoted here in greek he's not talking latin and in the greek world perfect meant something different than in the latin world he says you shall be perfect complete whole one thing not a not a mixture of things you shall be one thing just as your father in heaven 
is perfect. Repent. Jesus says, The kingdom of heaven is here. Why must we repent? For the same thing, the same reason that people of Galilee had to repent. Because this is not how their lives have been oriented. This is not the law under which they have lived. This is not the promise for which they had loved. This has not been the Lord that they've been looking for and longing for. Their lives wouldn't fit in this kingdom. They would be strangers in this kingdom. They weren't ready for this kingdom. And so He told them, repent, change, change your mind, change your actions, turn your lives, forfeit your citizenship here because You've been called to be citizen of another kingdom. You've been called to live your life according to a law of love. You've been called to live your life in the hope of the promise of joy, even when life isn't comfortable, even when life isn't successful, even when our freedoms are besmirched and our rights are trounced upon. Jesus is Lord. For He is the King, and His kingdom has been established. The sign of His kingdom is the sign of a cross. Which is interesting on a number of fronts. We... Uh, we like pretty crosses. We like ornate crosses, whether they're Gothic or Celtic, or you know, we like gold crosses. I've seen the girls now have the, the gold cross on the, the chain that's kind of sideways. I don't think it's trying to be mean or anything like bad or, or anti-Christian or anything. But you know, we wear crosses. We we think they're pretty. They're nice. They weren't pretty or nice in the ancient world. Not only were they a symbol of torture, they were a symbol of rejection. They were a symbol of Roman power and conquest. They were a symbol of Rome's dominance, which meant they were a symbol of Caesar. A Roman citizen wouldn't be crucified. Crucifixion were held for those who were beneath that social class. Crucifixion was something kept for enemies of Rome. And it was the assertion of Roman power. It was the assertion that Caesar is Lord and He will torture and hang and punish those who don't fall in line. And for 2,000 years, the church has victoriously and gloriously and joyously left Lifted up high 
our banner. The cross of Jesus. A symbol of torture and rejection. A symbol of suffering. And we have turned that symbol of Roman authority on itself. And it declares the authority of our King and our Lord. And before His cross, we are called to make ourselves ready to repent for His kingdom is at hand. As we consider the King and His kingdom, I want you to consider with me responding in a certain number of ways. Am I looking at the back of your communication card? You find these responses also on the back of your bulletin. Please mark those as well. That way you can hang on to the bulletin and remember your commitments. You can drop off your communication card and the offering plate at the back. That way I'll know your commitments and can be in prayer for you. In just a few moments we'll be praying and I want to invite you to pray with me for Christ to be Lord of your life. I've, uh, for the last few weeks, been telling you that my, uh, my goal in preaching is to uh, convince you to pray something with me, convince you to do something with me, and convince you to become something with me, rather than just trying to give you a, a list of things to do. I wonder if this week you would, um, you would consider doing this. Find a way to love an enemy. I, I've put enemy in quotes here because we don't, normally we don't think, uh, if, if we're, you know, civilized folks, you know, living, we normally don't think in terms of my enemy. That person's out to get me. But I wonder if you could think of someone maybe who's done you wrong. Maybe someone who, um, thinks lowly of you or someone who's stuck it to you, someone who's mistreated you, and find a way actively to love them. Because love is not just some feeling we muster out. Love is action. God's love for us is always connected to action. God loved, so loved the world He gave His only begotten Son. We know that God loves us because He's given His Son for us. I wonder if this week you would consider finding a way to love an enemy. Something tangible. Something active. And then lastly... As I asked you last week, I wonder if you would commit to becoming a more joyful person. We live in a kingdom that is governed by love and a kingdom in which we are promised by our Lord joy. 
not ease, not comfort, not success, not perpetual, contented happiness. But he offers us joy. And you've known it when you've been around somebody who's been joyful. And you've known it when you've been around somebody who's not joyful. And sometimes people who are more joyful in life are people that would never profess to be Christian. And sometimes some of the most unjoyful people you've been around gladly profess to be Christian. And only we can adjust the culture of the church around ourselves. Only in as, as we become more joyful can we control whether or not people recognize the church as being joyful. He is our King. His kingdom has been established and we are longingly awaiting the return of our King for His kingdom to come in its fullness. And as we wait, we wait as, as His people, as citizens of His kingdom. We wait in love, we wait in joy, we wait declaring that Jesus is Lord. And we conform our lives to Him. Let's pray.